episode six of the Book Swap Podcast. I'm Cody Cisco, and I'm here with Dan Lopez. Dan, how you doing? I'm doing good, Cody. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back <laughs> on. Um, we're in May already. Yeah. Catch me up. What's been going on? Oh, it has been a crazy month, month and a half. I started a new job. Um, I'm working at a publisher here in LA now, which has been really fun. As we were discussing a little bit before the show, it's a lot of reading. So I've been my nose in a book all the time as if that wasn't already the case. Um, but no, it's been great. Uh, the kickoff for for me was basically start around the same time as LA Times Festival Books. Um, so that was a real whirlwind week of, you know, going to the festival, doing all that stuff, getting a buried in a bunch of galleys, meeting a bunch of people, um, and then trying to just you know, watch Avengers and do other things that happen in life yes. <laughs> that you can't miss. <laughs> How was LA Festival Books for you? You um, mentioned you just started at Counterpoint. Yeah, and um, it was great. We had a booth there. We met a lot of our authors, uh, sold a lot of books, hung out with a lot of people. Uh, one of our authors was up for one of the LA Times uh, book prizes. Nice. So I got to go to the award ceremony. Um, she unfortunately did not win. Um, but we still had an amazing time at the party afterwards and at the awards themselves. Saw a lot of cool people. Also, Michelle Obama didn't win, so I feel like you're in good company not winning. <laughs> um, but no, it was really it was a really amazing kind of festival, and I, I kind of felt that that was seven thousand events that I would have otherwise had to go around the city to see. I got to do them all by just like being at that one place. Concentrated. Yeah. Time and space. Yeah. It always blows my mind, like how many people you run into, how many amazing authors are there, what a great programming they put on. Um, I don't know. Someone said it's like the biggest literary festival in the country. I don't know if that's true. I feel like Miami might be bigger, but it's definitely up there. Yeah, there might be like book industry right. events that are bigger, but then the emphasis is not on work, it's more about yeah. the, the industry. Um, you were there, you guys were there. I was there, yeah. that was a great time for us. We um, So the Magnolia Group has been at the Festival of Books, this was the third year in a row, and this time we had even more of our contributors come and hang out in the booth and chat with people who came up and bought books. So that was really nice, it felt more like a real kind of community that was growing around this, and um, and we sold a bunch of books, and that's always <laughs> it's always a good day. Um, oh, what I was going to say is that it was after Festival of Books two years ago that I started thinking about the need for something to highlight all the events that happen mm-hmm. at every other time of the year. You know, right? Festival of Books is once a year, but like, there's so many cool events happening in literary space. Throughout the year, that's kind of the, the germ that became books mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, um, lots of great stuff coming up. Actually, I think in a week or two is going to be Pasadena Lit Fest. Yes, that's going to be super, um, super cool. I'm definitely planning going to at least one panel that's going to have Corey Roskin, Alex Espinoza, Jacob Tobia, Ali Libgod, and a couple other people I'm forgetting uh, right now. That looks like it'll be amazing. All those people I've seen them in some capacity or another, and they've always been amazing. So. If that's just like a taste of what it'll be like, yeah. definitely go because it's going to be a great weekend. I think it's yeah. a full weekend yeah. of programming. I'm, I'm, so I'm watching the Eurovision final on Saturday. <laughs> so that's kind of like blocked for that. But then um, Sunday, I'm going to try to make it out. Yeah. Nice. Well, we'll have to compare notes. 
<laughs> about Eurovision, I mean. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll see. I don't know. Some of our listeners are going to know this, but then some might not. Sort of the life cycle of a book. Mm -hmm. So you're reading um, manuscripts now that if everything goes smoothly forward for one of them, they'll come into print. How far? Yeah, like about a year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, our production times are always getting uh, bigger, which is nice because then you're always working ahead of time. Um, so, yeah, when you're reading books now, you're like, oh, maybe this will be good for, you know, fall of 2020. Yeah. So, um, but it's really, I've never been on that side of the publishing before. So it's really an interesting kind of thing to learn how that works and, you know, mm -hmm. just you know, discover new stuff. Yeah. So now that that's part of your like work day, mm -hmm. are you still reading anything else? <laughs> uh, you possibly yeah, that is a fair, there's a fair question. And the answer so far is yes. Um, right. I've always been really good at that. Like I read a lot, um, even back in college, I always would read like multiple books on top of whatever I was reading for my English slash creative writing major. So I've always been good about that. Um, most recently, what I read, I've been reading a bunch of stuff that hasn't come out yet. Uh, we can talk about that stuff later. But the thing that I'm most excited that I read recently, I probably finished about a month or so ago. It's a play, actually, called The Inheritance by a guy named Matthew Lopez. No relation. But it is the story of a group. It's been a little bit since I read, so I don't remember exactly how many. I want to say maybe five to six um, gay men, contemporary, um, dealing with a lot of sort of issues. A lot of it is political, like what happens after the 2016 election. But a lot of it is just intergenerational relationships, dealing with trying to be an artist at the same time. Um, it got a lot of huge press. I believe I'm not in the play world, so I don't know how big it was all over the world, but I know it had a big opening in London. It was very popular, very successful there. I assume the same thing happened here in New York, but I can't uh, swear to it. But I definitely recommend it. I don't read a lot of plays, but this one caught my eye and I started flipping through it. And because it's a play, you read it super quick, but you would have read super quickly anyway, because it's just such an engaging narrative and it's formally inventive. The characters are really interesting. I had a great time with it and I, it made me just kind of want to revisit things like Angels in America, even yeah. though this is not like heavy AIDS, everyone's dying type of thing, but it still has that same voice in the band, like that kind of like core group of gay friends making in the big city, you know? Mm -hmm. oh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. What about you? What's been new for you? Uh, let's see. I reread uh, Not My White Savior, mm. a memoir in poetry by Julianne Lee, and uh, talked to her last week. So that'll be the interview coming up uh, in the next segment. And, you know, it's always so, her, her writing is so crystalline. It's like barbed wire. It's, you know, um, and it's pointing out things that are not um, immediately apparent, you know, around mm -hmm. family, around belonging, around identity. Um, some of the examples that come up in her work are, are just routine stuff like trying to find record, birth records. And right. As an adoptee, um, from Korea brought to, uh, I think it was the Midwest, maybe Minnesota specifically. Um, there's things that are just out of, things that she can't access about her, her, um, her. Uh, like her background, her yeah. biography. Yeah, her, even her biology, you know, like some mm. of the things that, um, you know, she can never go find her birth parents and ask them to take a 23andMe test. Right. Like, like, things like that. But, um, Maybe on rereading, the thing that struck me more was towards the end of the book, um, the poems become a little more, they open up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And there's even a fanciful one called Teleporting Babies. <laughs> 
already love it. <laughs> this is about, you know, what if these, um, you know, newborns and young children could uh, escape the path that they're on in terms of being taken from where they were born and given to a new family. And it's, um, it, it, it just, it provides this like really kind of surreal humor that, um, that I think does really good things for, for uh, the reading experience. It sounds like she has a point of view, and you'll probably get into this into the discussion. Um, but does she come down on like one side or the other about we should be doing um, like transcultural, trans country sort of adoptions, or we shouldn't? Does she have a, a strong argument one way or another about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, she she comes at her writing from a point of activism. So mm-hmm. there's it's very clear that. Um, she is advocating for changes in how intercountry adoption works and if even questioning like whether the practice should continue. Interesting. So, um, and what else? I read Guest House for Ganesha mm. by Judith Teitelman, which comes out in like a couple days. So by the time this airs, it'll be out um, and available in stores. I think her launch event is this Friday. So. May 10th in the past now. Right. <laughs> this is like Endgame. We're, We're doing a time heist. Time yeah. Um, <laughs> Spoiler alert, just in case you're listening to this in the past. And that was, you know, that was, I enjoyed it. It's the story of uh, a young woman who is left at the altar in a Polish shuttle. And listeners to the podcast will have heard the interview in the previous episode. So, you know, don't skip ahead. But, I'll do, I'll be brief. Um, she's left at the altar and this creates such a rupture with who she wanted to be and the love of her life that um, it just changes the tra- trajectory of her life. She moves to Cologne and then um, sort of lives through uh, the atrocities of World War II. And, and the book is about her, the practicalities of her surviving, but also the, the spiritual journey that she goes on to, you know, stay human in, in human circumstances. Um, and it has also the, the Hindu deity Ganesh who mm-hmm. talks to Esther and guides her on her journey and, and um, becomes part of her life. So that was a, that was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm enjoying um, books lately that have a bit of whimsy and fanciful um, mm-hmm. supernatural uh, elements to them. That sounds that sounds interesting and makes me want to put all these books on my list of very limited outside reading. Um, one other thing, speaking of whimsy, that I did manage to read. It's a it's a in galley form, so it hasn't come out yet. I think it comes out um, soon, though. It's called Rules for Visiting by Jessica Francis Kane, um, and it's a it's like kind of a quietly funny book, which I feel like sometimes may be a death knell to say that, but I actually really like, I don't love hu- like super funny books, but this one has the right amount of humor. Um, and it deals a lot with grief and family and friendship is the core of it. Um, it's actually got me thinking a lot about friendship um, and what that means as you grow older and how you stay in touch with people. The main character is a woman who has had some loss in her life, is a pretty, is very independent. She's middle-aged. Um, she lives in the house she grew up with. Her dad lives in the basement unit and she has like, it lives in the main house. Um, and she's a successful gardener at the local university. And one of the things that she does there um, is advocate to bring this yew tree, which is this big, massive, like beautiful old type of tree um, to the university, which inspires an award-winning poem, which then gets her a reward of like a month's vacation, basically. So like I'm condensing it a lot, but that's basically what sets off the book in motion. 
Um, and so a lot of it is she's like obsessed with trees in a really charming way. Like she'll say their Latin names. I think we're gonna keep this bit of audio because it's funny. We're in like a, a rented like studio space and there are a ton of actors outside who are now expressing their emotions. They are practicing expressing their emotions via screaming. Yeah, it's a primal moment right here. Always something fun in the in the shadow of the Hollywood sign. <laughs> I mean, it sounds a little bit like joy. It also sounds like maybe the zombies were let loose. Yeah. <laughs> this is what this is where it would happen. I feel like right here, and kind of next to the DMV. Right. Like. You know what? I like the idea of a zombie movie or a zombie scenario breaking out mm-hmm. when you're all around like Hollywood, but then to not be Hollywood. Right. That's a good scenario. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Well, inspiring. Yeah. Okay, so she gets this yew tree. Oh, right, right. Right, so she ends up going to visit, like, she has the three or four very good friends um, that she's never lost touch with completely, but she hasn't exactly been, like, calling every day. Um, So she decides to use the impetus to go and visit them. And the writing itself is just crisp. The voice, unlike any I've read in a while, that just immediately brings you in. She's a self-acknowledged, unreliable narrator, but not in a way that you feel like she's hiding things from you, that it's like she's legitimately grappling with trying to express things as clearly and as directly as she can knowing that her life and the events that have happened and the way she's like kind of compartmentalized herself has caused her to have blindnesses um so it's a really interesting kind of take on that um and like i said it's like kind of funny um and just really charming and there's all these adorable little drawings not drawn adorable they're more like whimsical um drawings of trees throughout the book so it's actually made me think a lot about friendship and a lot about trees so i walk around town now looking at trees and trying to guess what they are as if i have any idea <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks dan for coming on uh, this has been episode six and i'll see you again soon yeah see you soon Julaine Lee was originally born in South Korea and was adopted by a white Christian family in Minnesota. Her debut book of poetry, Not My White Savior, addresses her experience as an intercountry adoptee and other issues surrounding race, identity, and culture. I recently had a conversation with Julaine in which she frankly addressed the failings of the foster care system and the ramifications of intercountry transracial adoption and how she's found power in her poetry. This is Cody Cisco, and I'm here with Julaine Lee. Julaine, thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me on the the podcast. You dropped by uh, the Festival of Books, uh, and we chatted briefly. How did that go for you? The chat or the Festival of Books? <laughs> I hope the chat was okay, but yeah, how was the festival? You know what? I normally have gone to the Festival of Books in LA both Saturday and Sunday and tried to go to like stuff all day and everything and all night and I yeah it is especially if it's hot and I wasn't able to go to anything on Saturday because of other commitments and so I really only went to like I really didn't go to anything on Sunday I just went there stopped by the rare bird booth saw a few people wanted to hear a couple people but then it didn't work out so mm-hmm. it was really chill and so it was actually like one of the best because I didn't try and do like everything and you know what maybe that's the way to go like quality not quantity but it's go. hard though because sometimes there's authors there that you're like but they live so far away like when else when i will i get to hear them so yeah yeah it's a nice time when everyone sort of comes back and converges in one place mm-hmm. 
you were, so you're not living in LA right now, but you were previously and um, you were in town, I think for a couple workshops. Tell me about those. Right. So I had lived actually specifically in Long Beach. So okay. I was there and then I moved up to, I moved in August to start a new job. So um, I had already committed before I left to participate in the Celia Center for Arts Festival, um, which the Celia Center provides um, therapy and art therapy and um, counseling, group counseling and individual, I believe, um, for um, adoptees and um, foster alum and also children in foster care. So, and not just like all, I think, adoptees who are children as well, youth, um, and so I wanted to still participate in it because it's not very often. I mean, I've done readings and so on that are, you know, all adoptees, but I've never been part of like a whole festival. Mm -hmm. And as it evolved, it just became like more and more interesting. Um, there were two shows, you know, Friday, Saturday that we, every, everybody who participated or performed, I guess you could say, um, was an adoptee or foster alum, all adults. Uh, we had one birth mother who also shared their story. Um, and I haven't really heard a lot of narrative from the, from, you know, the foster care system. So I think that was really, um, it was, I learned a lot and I think it's really important to have that experience shared more publicly. Um, and then on Saturday, I also um, facilitated a workshop for adoptees and foster alum. And again, I've only, I've never opened that up to, um, you know, people who have aged out of the foster system before. So that was, that was a new um, way for me to have that workshop. And I'm glad I did. And I think it will always be open to people. Um, you know, it, it's that one, it was like 18 and over. So, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's, I think it's important. We had some, you know, great um i think interaction and everything but i think it's um yeah i just kind of like that whole experience kind of opened my eyes up more on like what what the whole how the whole system of adoption and foster care it's all interrelated and mm. just how important it is to you know expand that narrative what um what similarities did you see well i think similarities of like maybe not feeling like you belong or feeling like you're, you know, supposed to be grateful for this or that. But then I think like one, um, I think also that whole, like having to feel like you're grateful for something when you're like also that loss. Mm. Um, and I think for, for somebody who's gone through the foster care system, it's like that instability and like, okay, well I'm here in this foster home, but how long, like, you don't yeah. know, you know, and um, some of my, adult friends who went through the system, you know, it's like, it's just kind of come out over lunch, you know, like, oh yeah, I was in foster care and then like, you know, leading a thriving life now, but there's no resources for me now. And I was mm. like, oh, wow. That's kind of like, oh, you're an adult, you've aged out, you've graduated, but it's like, well, where does that person still have like family or, you know, yeah. faith? What should everyone know about intercountry adoption? Um, well, I think it's, you know, it varies, <clears throat> excuse me, it varies from country to country. The reasons why it exists. Um, but I think what people should know is that 
again, I think the whole theme with adoption is that, you know, a lot of times I think the people are told, oh, you have a better life. You should be grateful. You know, I think, you know, especially like in, if we look at Korea specifically, like, oh, Korea was a war-torn country. It's like, well, I've gone back there as an adult and it looks like it, people are doing pretty well. Not to say that there isn't still a working class, you know, and economic disparities, but it's like, you know, there's people who have more yeah. than enough money. Um, so I think that whole notion of like, well, you're better off. And it's like, well, why, why do you think I'm better off? Like what yeah. you can't prove, you can't prove a hypothetical life. I don't mm -hmm. think, I think also with inter-country adoption, one thing like inter-country adoption to the U S has proven to be, um, not, a it's not as, a, a, a it's not a system without flaws for sure, mm -hmm. because we know, for, for example, the Korean government has confirmed that there's over 18,000 Korean adoptees to the U.S. that never received their U.S. citizenship. Wow. And because of us knowing people from other countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, um, Iran, several other countries, where people were also not naturalized as U.S. citizens, we estimate this could be in the tens of thousands, you know, hmm. it's hard to tell. So I think that's one huge flaw. I think also with inter-country adoption, a lot of times it's transracial adoption. So somebody being adopted by a, somebody of a different race. And I think a lot of times the adoption agencies were saying, you know, just, um, you know, just have your child adapt. So, you know, just have them assimilate. And it's like, you can't assimilate to a white, culture and a white norm when you're not white you yeah. can't do it it's and not. when the parents are not equipped to even have the conversation a lot of the times right like it's right. right like are you as a parent willing to be a little uncomfortable or you know not even have to be uncomfortable but just like are you willing to go out of your way to learn about what it takes to preserve your child's ethnic and racial heritage you know if their hair and skin require different care than yours are you willing to find out what that means and go to those stores and get those products and help them feel comfortable with who they are and yeah. provide those role models for them so um i think a lot of that is changed in the last i don't know decade or so or more but it, there's still a lot of work to be done i think there's still a lot of work to be done and educating people yeah are you hearing from adoptees that are of like a younger generation that are having more positive experiences with being um, sort of interracial adoptees? I would say yes and no. I would say yes on the level that there's more resources now. But okay. I also think that when you just say, well, there's more resources, it doesn't mean that people feel more comfortable if they're not given, if they're not like presented with those resources in a way that feels comfortable, if they don't have access to those resources, like just because a lot of schools offer, you know, an ethnic studies, you know, track or course. That doesn't mean that you are going to a school that has that, mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't mean that your school, just because we have Black History Month doesn't mean that your school emphasizes it. I actually know that there are schools that don't take off on Martin Luther King Day. They have mm -hmm. school and it's like, well, what kind of a message does that send to children? You know, yeah. unless you're doing like a service work project or something to, you know, honor Dr. King's memory and legacy, but I don't think most people, I don't know that most people are, I don't know. I, I guess I was surprised. I'm, I've been surprised at the response 
that what the what the conversation is with I was going to say like maybe like people in their 20s, for example, transracial intercountry adoptees in their 20s. And I, I've spent a lot more time on Twitter in the last year or so than I had before. And it's interesting because I kind of thought for a while it's like, okay, Korean intercountry Korean adoptees, you know, there's a lot of us that are like crit critical of the system. Um, and and within that, you know, there's plenty of people that are critical of the system, but also appreciative of the opportunity they've had because of the family they were adopted into or whatever. Mm. So some people did not have great experiences and we acknowledge that too. But I think that the interesting thing is that there are people like literally like college age messaging me and saying, you know, thanks for writing your book. I'm glad to know that I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And that makes me like really sad to think that that's people are still experience. That's still part of the experience. Um, and, and just being on Twitter too, there's a, you know, I mean, it's interesting to see how it's not just intercountry adoptees. It's not just transracial adoptees. It doesn't matter what country, it doesn't matter what race you are. People are pissed off because of how the system failed them. Mm -hmm. um, there was a documentary that came out last year. I think it was called Three Perfect Strangers. And it was about this, um, these triplets that were split up and adopted to three different families. Wow. And this agency, Louise Wise, um, they had like this case study going on where they intentionally divided, like split up multiple birth siblings, like twins and so on, because they wanted like to do this, you know, social social study on them. This case Ignoring study. the benefits of having a sibling, for example. Though. And keeping a family intact. Yeah. 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 So I think like the corruption is, <clears throat> you know, it's widespread. It's not limited to, you know, intercountry adoption from Korea. It's not mm -hmm. limited to international adoption. It's, it is widespread. I mean, there's, you know, white adoptees in Ireland or England, you know, that are like, you know, coming together because they know the power in like being able to, you know, meet up for a book discussion or whatever. And because they didn't have that, you know, interaction and could have really benefited from it, you know, earlier in life, perhaps. So one of the things I appreciated about um, your memoir in poems, not my <laughs> white savior, is, I mean, it tells a very personal story in a way, but it also links it to the system that created the conditions for your life um, mm -hmm. and how you were raised and um, the the emotion that comes through is one of, I mean, palpable anger uh, in some cases, and also sadness and also determination. But it also serves as a kind of focal point for your activism, which I find fascinating. And we've had this discussion before, um, for example, when you and Shonda Buchanan and a few others came to the, um, the publishing workshop and we talked about um, activism and publishing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how has um, having this book come out um, and being able to talk about it over the last year, how has that affected how you are advocating for adoptees? Um, I think my biggest advocacy is, I think, well, one, I've been more active on social media, which my prior to even thinking about a book, my Twitter was completely on lockdown and private. I mean, I just, I opened mm. it because we were using it at work and I needed to learn it. But then it was like, people were like, oh, you should open it up. I was like, no, 
but it's open. Um, and I didn't want to start Instagram at all, but I was told like, well, <laughs> you know, yeah. so I think, and I'm glad I did because of what I've learned in connecting with other people. Um, and just, I, I would not, I don't think that, that I would have connected with people if I had not, I would say like really still like the reason I wrote the book is because, I mean, I've been writing and reading you know, for a while. And, you know, sometimes people would want to talk to me about something I read and I didn't really want to do that or they'd want a copy of it. And I was just like, you know, I was just getting up on the mic to like for my own therapy. Yeah. Um, but I guess I felt like I was kind of finally at a place where it's like, you know what, this could be shared. And if it's helpful to at least one person, then it's worth it. And I don't even know what that means. Helpful. Like, I think mm -hmm. somebody messaging me and saying like, now I know I'm not alone. That yeah. to me is helpful. Like, cause who wants to feel like they're alone? I don't know anybody though. Maybe there's like, I like to be alone sometimes. <laughs> I don't know anybody that wants to feel alone. Right. You know, I mean, being alone, in fact, I'm going to write this down. Being alone and feeling alone, I think are, are two very different things. That would make um, a great um, title. Okay. <laughs> writing, again, writing it down, making some notes here. Um, but I think really my, my main like mission, I guess, I would say still with the book a year later is, you know, if again, if it's going to connect with somebody and it's, and it's helpful, but also empowering other people to speak their truth, you know, um, whether they're adopted or not, whether they're in the foster care system or not. But I think that's one of the things with the writing workshop that I did um, when I was in LA I'm actually doing it again um, up in San Francisco here um, next weekend is, you know, providing that space and facilitating an opportunity for people to write and express if they want to talk about the writing they can, but to express things that they've maybe never felt like they could. Mm. Like, and I, and I, I kind of like through doing this workshop several times now, I, I feel like it's almost like, you know, he writes something down. It's kind of that fear of if you ever kept a diary or a journal when you're growing up that like, your parents or somebody would find your most private thoughts. And, you know, it's like, no, you, this is for you only. Um, if you want to go home and burn it, shred it, if that makes you feel better. Um, but I've done this workshop, not just for adoptees and foster alone, but I've done it like for more general audiences. And it's like, it brings up a lot of emotions for people. Cause they're like, wow, I've never tried that before, mm. you know? And it's like, my goal with the workshop is to provide people with a couple of prompts and just kind of the feel like they have the tools to like, you know, do this on their own later, you know, mm -hmm. cause I'm not always going to be there, but that's, I feel like writing is so powerful, um, has been for me. And I don't know a writer that would say that it's not, there's all, you know, we all have our reasons for writing, but, um, that's what I hope to be able to give to people that, after you leave this workshop, this experience today, that you feel like you can go use this experience on your own to process whatever it needs, whether it's related to adoption or not. Like there might be an adoptee who just needs to process like some crap they dealt with at work or something, you know? I mean, it's it's a good way, I think, to just kind of get get kind of some of that stuff out and um, feel like it's okay to, to say those things, but you know, you're saying it to the paper first and maybe you'll say it out loud later, but you don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, when we chatted previously that you mentioned 
that you had participated in the community literature initiative um, when you were working on the manuscript and, and right. performing some of the poems that that uh, became part of Not My White Savior. Um, was that part of the um, process? Just, you know, putting your own truth out there on the page and, and hearing other people's voices? Yes. And I would say, like, my class um, was a very diverse and the instructors I had both writing and performance, you know, were also, it was a very diverse group of um, instructors, which I think is really important for me. Um, and, you know, I wasn't sure, like I, there were no other adoptees that I knew of in the class and in an audience, like at an open mic, you have no idea who's there, you know, um, there might be some adoptive parents that might get offended by this, or just maybe there might be adoptees who get offended by it. Sure. And so, yeah, I think being in workshop with Community Literature Initiative, CLI, it's like, you know, we had to like share poems and get feedback on them. And, you know, it's, there's a risk there, you know, and we know each other, you become close to one. But, you know, a couple, like one person I remember after I read one poem, she's like, wow, you're a survivor. And to me, that's better than any like, hey, I think you should fix this line or <laughs> yes. like by this. Or what about the line break it? Like that kind of feedback is like, okay, yes, there are things I could do to tweak to make the poem better. Um, and it was a pretty long piece, but it was like, you know, that that wasn't an a response, I guess, that I was expecting. I didn't. I was expecting the workshop, the writing workshop responses and feedback. Mm -hmm. But I think things that people in my class told me a lot too was like that they would learn a lot from my poetry. So I was like, okay, well then this is important because even though, you know, this is a diverse group of people, like this might be new. And so yeah. it does need to be shared. Um, so I think, yeah, it was definitely, and we were also advised like, you know, hey, get out there and go to at least one open mic every week. And so I kind of took that yeah. literally. Um, maybe I wasn't every week, but I tried to go to at least, you know, something every week where I could either, even if I didn't get to like read at the open mic, but at least like, you know, meet other poets. And I, many times, like, like I am now like writing and just like being inspired by what other people were doing. Absolutely. Um, which I think is always great too. Is like bring an outbook to an open mic. Cause you never know what somebody might say that just kind of jogs something for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you've done um, a lot of readings since the book was launched um, just over a year ago. What, has anything changed for you in how you're thinking about the book or in terms of how um, readers are receiving it or the type of interactions you're having with people? Has it evolved over time? I would say one thing that's evolved is like, I mean, you were at the book release party in LA and so you yes. got to hear like that full set, which is available online if anybody cares to see the live stream. Oh yeah. <laughs> Still available. Um, but I, I mean, so it's like some of those poems I haven't read much lately. Um, I mean, I think that's the beauty of having a whole book is like you get to choose. And there, you know, there were some poems that like I had read a lot before the book came out. And then when the book came out, like I just, I didn't read that much. I mean, so there, it's interesting to see that kind of flow with it. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also gotten to the point now too, where, okay, it's been a year. And if people have heard me read more than once, like, do they care anymore? I guess is my question, you know. Um, Once isn't so, enough, I would say. Yeah. 
I know, like, I feel bad. I keep inviting all my friends. It's like, they're probably like, yeah, we know. But yeah, but you've so been to these, but a lot of people have not. So, you know, there's always right. room for more. Yeah. yeah. But then again, it's like, I've also, you know, been writing and wanting to share some new stuff too. So that's, you know, yeah. I think I finally, like two readings, the last two readings, I, I read some new, new things that aren't in the book. And that kind of felt good too, to just, you know, be talking about some of the same things, but in different ways, maybe. Hmm. How um, would you say that they're different, these new things? Well, one was an excerpt of an essay. Okay. Um, that was at AWP, and it was in regards to um, the Korean reunification that is being, you know, discussed, and it's in process. And it's like, for years, I have said that it's just so hypocritical of South Korea to talk about reunification, but to continue to send children out for adoption. And mm. I, I just think it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And North Korea will not tolerate that. I'm sure they will have something to say because you're in a sense, then you are, you're cutting out part of the revolution. You're cutting out people who can help facilitate the revolution. And why mm. would you do that? That makes no sense. Um, and also I think, um, like I've been thinking about grief and loss in just general terms, like losing people, you know, I mean, there's mm -hmm. loss in, in adoption, but I think, you know, like losing a friend, you know, and um, so I've been working on like, what does that really mean? Like when people say, Oh, my condolences or like, Oh, you're in my thoughts and prayers. You're like, what, what, what the hell does that really mean? You know, like it doesn't fix anything. It just, it does, you know, there's like, what are the things that you say? What are, is there anything to say when somebody dies? Yeah. And so, you know, being able to write about that more. And then it turned out like the last reading I did, I would, you know, I like on social media, I was like, oh, I promise I'll have at least, try to have at least one new poem. And I didn't know what it would be. I kind of had some ideas. And then um, a friend of mine died the week before. Mm -hmm. um, so it ended up being about death and grieving. And just, again, kind of asking some of those questions that, we, I, that I just said is like, what is, you know, it's like time, you know? people say the time is a healer and it's like, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. Like, I don't necessarily, not, not in the way maybe that I have believed it in the past, you know? So, um, and then I think there's two, there's, there's things that I didn't include in the book that I didn't even realize I had left out. So, hmm. um, and one of those things I've been, I've been working on a poem and an essay on um, just like my first time eating Korean food as an adult and just how traumatic it was. Cause I didn't, I didn't understand the menu. I don't know yeah. that there were even great photos with it. I had no idea. It was like the most awkward junior high moment as an adult I think I've ever had. Like I can still remember very clearly what happened and it wasn't a complete disaster, but I just wanted to run away, you know? Yeah. So. That yeah. sounds like <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to read it. So <laughs> <laughs> wishing you uh, productive writing and, uh, yeah good luck on your publishing journey. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say like, I, I was rereading, um, some of the poems in not my white savior today. And the one that really jumped out at me for it's, it's got a mix of both this like really cutting darkness of acknowledging like this horrible situation, but then there's this kind of lighthearted, fanciful, almost magical realism aspect to it. It's teleporting babies. <laughs> <laughs> where it's like, it's such, it's, it's, uh, it's just like pure alchemy, you know, where the ingredients come together and make it, um, 
more than each. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that ironically, I mean, because when um, when I was talking with Julia and Tyson at Rare Bird about the book and they're like, you know, one of the things they said was like they really liked all the anger in it. And I was like, oh, OK, because that is not usually I'm just so used to hearing like, don't be so angry, you know. Mm. Um, and then and I know there's like a lot of pain in the book and everything, too. And it's all real. But it's like, OK, is there any hope? And um, I went to the Allied Media Conference a couple of years ago and they had a poetry track and the, um, one of the workshops was like writing kind of like the future we dream for or something. And mm-hmm. um, the facilitators were Franny Choi and Denez Smith. And they said, think about a um, superpower. If you could have a superpower, mm-hmm. what would it be? And then yeah. that, so that poem came out of their workshop and then um, the last reading I did here in the Bay was with Franny and then uh, another Korean American poet, Ed Buckley. And so I read that poem because I think it is a good um, kind of provide some balance and it yeah. is like kind of a good um, way to be like, okay, how do we rewrite history? You know, like if we could, how would we do that? Um, and then it was of course special to read it with, you know, like in a reading with Franny. But it was interesting, too, because last fall in September, I went to, I was invited to go to, um, it was like an adoptee arts showcase um, in Seattle. And one of the artists, a visual artist, he, um, they shared like some different like images and stuff. And they started talking about like, yeah, I was just thinking like, wouldn't it be cool? Like when we were babies on the plane and they're putting us on the plane to come to America, like what if we could have just like got up and walked off? And I was like, the whole time I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, we have to collaborate on something. Yeah. And then I read that poem and he's like, oh my gosh. So (laughs) I'm not the only one who's thought about if we could teleport as babies. So yeah. Yeah. Taking back that power. That's one of my favorites. So. Oh, great. Yeah. And I, I did feel like towards towards the end in that final section, there were there were more kind of um, options or like an opening up of like what what could change? You know, what would it feel like? What would it look like um, what, if we called it what it is? There's there's a poem about the um, the Olympics mm. and how sort of um, the 88 Olympics in Seoul were kind of a missed opportunity to reform, mm-hmm. but, that, but that every, you know, anniversary and um, is an opportunity to revisit that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and actually after the 88 Olympics, cause that was like the peak of adoption, like leading up to the 88 Olympics, it was, there were like eight, six to 8,000 children per year being wow. sent abroad and not just to the U S but Europe, Australia and so on. And um, yeah, so it did start to take, you know, taper off, but reform, I wouldn't say no, but just less, less children doesn't mean reform. Right. Mm. But I mean, they did start to send less children, but that doesn't fix the system. But the process itself is still corrupt and uh, there are problems with it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause most of the children, even then were coming from unwed mothers and, you know, who, you know, still very stigmatized in Korean society. Mm. Well, Julaine, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. It was great to catch up. And I hope when you have some news to share, you'll come back on. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Cody and Bookswell. Thanks, Julaine. Hello, 
again, Intersections listeners. I'm Shannon Egan, and I have so many amazing upcoming events to talk about, including the two-day Pasadena Lit Fest, so I'm just going to get right to it. Up first, Wednesday, May 15th at 7.30 p.m., The Last Bookstore will host Chris Catan to discuss his memoir, Baby Don't Hurt Me. Catan was on Saturday Night Live back when you actually had to watch it live, and he's so hysterically funny that I'm sure the experience of reading his book will only be enhanced by getting to hear him excerpted in person. Thursday, May 16th at 7.30 p.m., Julie Oringer will be at Skylight Books with her highly anticipated new release, The Flight Portfolio. This was a Book of the Month Club selection, and fans of her bestseller, The Invisible Bridge, are sure to love this historical fiction focused on a man saving artists and their work during Holocaust-era France. If any of our listeners are fans of the podcast Pop Rocket, you'll be pleased to know that Karen Tonkson has a new book out called Why Karen Carpenter Matters. Tonkson is a Filipino-American culture critic, writer, and queer studies scholar, and the book details her own journey from Manila to the U.S. and her connection to her namesake, Karen Carpenter. This event will be Friday, May 17th at 7 p.m. at Book Soup, and she'll be joined by the hilarious comedian and author Guy Branham, her Pop Rocket co-host. Graphic novel fans, Saturday, May 25th at 5 p.m., Malaka Garib will be discussing her graphic memoir, I Was Their American Dream. This book is being called a triumphant tale of self-discovery, a celebration of a family's rich heritage, and a love letter to American immigrant freedom. Okay, now grab your planners because I'm going to shout out some particularly wonderful goings-on from the wide array at the Pasadena Lit Fest. The festival runs Saturday and Sunday, May 18th and 19th, from 1 p.m. to 10 p.m., and all of the events are free and open to the public. Day one. For any aspiring writers out there, Kamari Carter-Hawkins is hosting a journaling workshop from 1 to 2.30 p.m. She's focusing on how personal journaling can help you get back to what you love most about writing. I've had the pleasure of meeting Kamari before, and she's an awesome poet and human. At 3 p.m., check out Languas Revoltosas, Writers of Color Disrupting Traditional Literary Zones. This multi-genre reading is about challenging perceptions of Latinx and POC writing and identity. At 6 p.m., I'm intrigued by the panel Hashtag We Too, Sex Work in the Wake of a Movement. Feminist Press has a forthcoming anthology of the same name focused on how sex workers are often left out of traditional feminist movements. Day two. Any YA devotees out there may appreciate Be True to You, Own Voices and Empathy in YA, featuring Bookswell Fave and host of the Queer Book Club at the last bookstore, C.B. Lee, among many others. That's at 3 p.m., as is the next event I just have to plug. If you're a podcast junkie, and I'm guessing you are, How Literature Podcasts Rupture the Space-Time Continuum should be right up your alley. It's all about how listening to bookish podcasts can make you feel like your endless commute isn't totally wasted time. Finally, I wanted to plug Community Storytellers, a reading from the students of the Community Literature Initiative at 4.30 p.m. If you've never heard of CLI, they are a wonderful nonprofit dedicated to serving the community through performance-based literature. Check them out and come and support their students. All right, I told you there were a lot of great events to get through. (laughs) Check out our website, bookswell.club, as well as litfestpasadena.org for more comprehensive guides to these events and many, many more. And follow us on social media at Bookswell Club. Thanks for listening.